Well, children, thank you so much for leading us in worship, and now you are dismissed to go to Children's Church. Um, and I would invite the rest of you to, to join me in prayer as we prepare to, uh, to engage with God's Word. So would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of knowing you and the joy that that brings. And so, Lord, as we, as we engage with your Word this morning, we, we ask that you would fill us with a sense of joy, that you'd help us to know that despite our circumstances, we have cause for joy in you. Lord, we thank you for your love over us. We thank you for the assurance from this passage that you rejoice over us, that you are singing over us, that you will quiet us with your love. Lord, may we get a, a foretaste of that even, even now. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we, uh, we are in a series uh, on uh, the topic of Advent where we are looking at the different lectionary passages uh, from, the, from the Hebrew prophets uh, that point us to the coming of our Savior Jesus. Um, so it's a, it's a, a fun way to, to prepare our hearts and, and to get ready for the season. It also can give us a little bit of whiplash. Uh, we started in Jeremiah, which is in one period, and then we jumped over to Malachi, and now we're jumping back in time 200 years uh, to, to look at the book of Zephaniah. Um, and I know that everyone's favorite book in the Bible is the book of Zephaniah, no question. Like, everyone's life verse comes from Zephaniah. Um, but for, for those of you uh, who may be less familiar, one of the things that we're going to do today, just recognizing that we are jumping around quite a bit, we're going we're gonna to spend a good deal of time sort of looking at the, the main thrust of the book before we dive, uh, dive directly into this passage. So um, if you're a little nervous, uh, you know, after I've been preaching for like 20 minutes and you're like, he still hasn't talked about the passage, don't worry, it's not going to be an hour-long sermon. Uh, we're just going to set the scene because the scene does need to be set. Now, uh, over the, the past year and a half, um, you've heard me talk about this from the pulpit. I, I've gotten really into mountain biking. Um, I'll stop talking about it at some point, but I'm not there yet. Um, so I, I, I've gotten better uh, in the year and a half that I've been working on it, um, but I'm like nowhere near what anyone would call good. Uh, but one of the things that has made getting into the sport really fun is that for the most part, in general, the, the guys that I have ridden with and other mountain bikers I've encountered have been like super nice. Um, and I, I really enjoy, you know, when I ride with people, I enjoy riding with people who are better than me because that is ultimately how you learn and how you get better. And in general, when I'm riding with folks who are, who are more advanced than I am, all I'm looking for is just like mere tolerance because I am inevitably going to slow the people that I'm riding, riding with down. But I've been really surprised at, at like the warm receptions that I've received from people who are far more advanced than I am. Uh, one example of that, uh, over the summer I had a friend take me to a, uh, a mountain bike park. There are such things as mountain bike parks they're glorious. Uh, it's kind of like Disneyland, but better in every conceivable way, because uh, Disneyland doesn't have mountain bikes. Anyway, um, so it's basically just this, this endless array of perfectly manicured trails. It's a great time, and uh, I, I started to go down one that was a little bit more advanced, and it was my first time on the trail, so I was going down the trail relatively slowly, and about halfway through, a guy comes up right behind me, and I'm like, oh man, because I know that I'm going to be slowing this guy down. 
And I, I tried to get out of the way, but there's not, not a lot of space on these trails. And so he was just, he was just stuck. There's nothing I could do. There's nothing he could do. And so um, I, I yelled back at him, you know, sorry. Eh. Um, <laughs> and I was expecting a kind of resigned, like, yeah, it's fine. Uh, but what I got instead, uh, this guy just yells up. He's like, it's all good, man. Don't worry. So long as you're having a good time. And I'm like, I am having a good time. This is great. Uh, now, that was, a, that was a relatively extreme example, but I, I think it's, it's indicative of an overall attitude that I have experienced over and over again as I've been getting into the sport, where people don't just merely tolerate me, but I've, I've received this warm reception. And I think that in a very small way, is a picture of the way, according to this passage, that God receives his people. See, we can fall into the trap of thinking it once we have reckoned with our sin even just a little bit. That God, out of his grace and his mercy, because he is so good and kind, he might be willing to let us in. He might be willing to, to allow us to come into his presence, to enter into his kingdom, sort of just by, by looking the other way and, and letting us skirt by. I, many of us can, can fathom that kind of acceptance. But friends, that is not at all the way that our God receives us. According to this passage, when we come to God in humility, he doesn't just let us skirt by. Instead, we're told in verse 17, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That is beyond good news. And that's the truth that we get to unpack this morning as we dig into this amazing text. But as I mentioned before, uh, before, we, before we get there, I want to spend a little bit of time, a fair amount of time actually, sort of setting the scene, right? Talking about who is Zephaniah and what is this book all about. So if you'll journey with me, we'll start by talking about the author of the book of Zephaniah. Now, it's a mystery, um, but it's, uh, it's told for us in the, in the very beginning of the book. Zephaniah is the author. Uh, Zephaniah 1.1 tells us, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Right, so this verse tells us, that our author is Zephaniah and that that author was a prophet, someone to whom the word of God had come. And we learn that he was a descendant of the king, the great king Hezekiah, though Zephaniah wasn't himself a part of, uh, part of the royal line. And he delivered his prophecy, he delivered the word of God to the people during the reign of Josiah. Now, Josiah was king over the southern kingdom of Israel for about 31 years, reigning from roughly 640 to 609 BC, which means that, that we're jumping again from last week backwards in time, about 200 years. So Malachi wrote in the mid-5th century BC, now we are in the mid-7th century BC. Now, I mentioned that Josiah was king of the southern kingdom, but at this point in Israel's history, that's kind of a misnomer because the northern kingdom was no more. It had been swept away some 80 years before Josiah took the throne by the Assyrian Empire. 
And God allowed that to take place as judgment against the northern kingdom for continually refusing to listen to God, to abide by his law, continually going the other way. Now, ideally, that reality, that event would have wisened the southern kingdom up. They, they would have been able, they should have been able to recognize, you know, when God issues a threat, he takes that threat seriously. If God threatens exile, he will come through on that threat. But unfortunately, it didn't. Instead of, of changing their ways and adhering to God's law, they, they dug more deeply into their sinful habits and rebellion against the law of God. That is until the 18th year of Josiah's reign, when Hilkiah, the priest, actually found the book of the law in the temple. Now think about that for a minute. The priest found the book of the law in the temple. This means that it had been lost previously. Makes one consider what was the priest doing up until that point, but that's neither here nor there. It just shows you, though, the, the, the degradation, the, the, the extent to which the southern kingdom had fallen. So when he finds the book of the law, he finds, again, finds the book of the law, what does he do? Well, he takes it to the king and he reads it before Josiah. And Josiah is undone. He hears the words of the law and he tears his clothes and he weeps because he knew, according to 2 Kings 22, verse 13, Great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. And so then, over the next 13 years of Josiah's reign, he leads a powerful reformation in Judah, right? building upon the law of God. And just to, to briefly catalog some of what he did, all of this is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 23. He renewed the covenant between God and his people. He took all of the vessels of Baal and Asherah, these were vessels to false gods, he took them out of the temple and burned them. He disposed, or excuse me, he deposed the idolatrous priests. He broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes. He removed the horses that, uh, that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun, and he reinstituted the Passover that had been ignored since the days of the judges. So this was the context in which Zephaniah was writing. And when we read this little book, right, it's only three chapters long, we should see it as part of that overall, that, that larger call to reform, to live in accordance with God's law and his will. And it's likely that Zephaniah teamed up with the king, Josiah, as an effort to draw the people back to God. And what was the prophet's message? Well, it, it consisted largely in this book of three parts. First, there is a warning of the wrath to come. Second, there is a call to repentance. And third, there is joy in a future promise. So we're going to go ahead and look at each of those points here. Now, most of this book, and again, it's, it's not very long, it's only three chapters. Most of the book, though, is taken up with a warning of God's wrath that was going to be leveled against, well, everyone. Everyone was deserving of God's wrath. And so we see uh, Zephaniah call out the surrounding region. He starts with, uh, with the Philistines, and he names each of the five major cities 
uh, of the Philistines. And he says that God's wrath is coming against them. And the Philistines lived to the west of Israel along the coast. And then he turns his attention to the, uh, to the Moabites and the Ammonites who lived to the east of Israel before then turning his attention south to the Ethiopians before finally naming the Assyrians who were to the north. And you see what, what, what Zephaniah is doing. He is drawing a circle around Israel. And he's saying all of these nations who have teamed up against God's people, those who have, who have perpetrated violence and oppression, that God was coming, that God was going to act on behalf of the oppressed, of the downtrodden, that God sees injustice and he doesn't let it go unanswered. So it meant that the Israelites who had, who had suffered under these different regimes, they could find hope. But this was not meant to be a rah-rah moment for Israel. They don't get to sit back in pride and arrogance as they watch God execute judgment in the areas that surround them. No, God was also coming for them. See, the, the warning against the nations is bookended by a warning against Israel. And so it starts with a judgment on Israel and it closes with a judgment on Israel. In fact, chapter 3, the chapter which we're looking at today, opens with these ominous words against Jerusalem, which was the capital of Judah. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. <laughs> Wrath. Uh, it's a, not necessarily what you walked in expecting um, on our, during our Advent service. However, um, it's an important thing for us to unpack because it is present here in this text. And I think the, the topic of wrath has a tendency to make us uncomfortable Generally, in our culture, when we conceive of God, if it's happening outside the church, the conception of God is one of love, and that's the end of the story. And often, Christians, we, we can overemphasize or we emphasize God's love to the exclusion of all of his other attributes. And so, texts like this are either discounted or they're skirted around. You may have never heard a sermon on the book of Zephaniah. But the biblical picture of God's nature and character is much more nuanced than we often give him credit for. The God of the Bible is not a benevolent grandpa who turns a blind eye to our, to our wrongdoing. God's willing, God is willing to act in judgment. And, and friends, that is actually good news. For one thing, it shows us that our God cares deeply about justice. There's a, a theologian at Yale named Miroslav Volf, and in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he writes this, If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. See, that topic, this topic, hits home for, for Wolf in a way that it... Um, that a lot of theologians can't fully identify with. See, Wolf was born in Croatia, and he experienced firsthand the incredible violence in the, in the Balkans. There he saw, going on for years and years, 
this endless cycle of violence and vengeance, retaliation. Right? One group does something to another group, and then they respond in kind, and, and it just goes on and on and on. And he believes that the only way out of that cycle is belief in a God who judges. He explains, the only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. Now, he recognizes that that, that, that view, especially at Yale, is going to be unpopular. But he writes, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. All right, what he's saying is, is essentially this. If you've talked to people who have experienced horrible injustice, who've had their homes burn, who've burned, who've had their family members killed, the only way to get them out of the cycle of violence, well, it's certainly, you're not going to get them out of the cycle of violence and retaliation by saying, hey, don't you know that violence isn't the answer? That type of moralizing, it's not going to reach anyone's heart. And it shows a lack of concern. It shows a lack of concern for justice. Anyone who has been deeply wronged knows in their bones that justice has to be done. And according to Wolf, the only resource he knows powerful enough to both pacify the human heart for, uh, for justice and at the same time keep us from getting sucked, sucked into the cycle of violence is to say that there is a God and that he, not us, will put everything right. While the idea of, of wrath makes us uncomfortable, it addresses a longing that we all have. See, we all know that there is something wrong with the world and with our own hearts. We all know that, that justice has to come, and we all want it. But the only way that we're actually going to get it is if God brings it. Now, along these lines, I think it's important for us to keep in mind that, that God's anger isn't evidence of a lack of love. In fact, it's the opposite. As Becky Piper points out in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, namely sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. What's wrong with the world will, will at its core the issue is sin. And so God, out of his love, will not allow sin to go unopposed. That being said, God's wrath, though important and necessary, it isn't the final word. It's not the whole story. Another key aspect of Zephaniah's message is a call to repentance. Now we see this call in chapter 2. In verses 1 through 3, we read, Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, 
all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So even in the midst of judgment and anger, God is eager to show mercy. Judgment is a good thing. It's necessary. But as Jonathan Edwards writes, God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. He had rather they should turn and continue in peace. He is well pleased if they forsake their evil ways, that he may not have occasion to execute his wrath upon them. He is a God that delights in mercy, and judgment is his strange work. Our God delights in mercy, and judgment is his strange work. Which is why the book ends the way that it does with this encouraging note by encouraging us to find joy in a future promise. So now we're going to get into our passage. Let's look at verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Well, the next verse tells us, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. See, at the time that Zephaniah was writing, the people were, ve- were under very real threats. That the northern kingdom had already been swept away by the Assyrians, and those same Assyrians had set their sights on the southern kingdom. And while the Assyrians wouldn't ultimately have victory over the southern kingdom, the Babylonians eventually would. Josiah and Zephaniah did lead a revival, and a real change took place. But the people eventually went back to their old ways. And God executed his judgment against them through Babylon. But Israel's hope was not in the prosperity of the nation or the vanquishing of surrounding armies. They had reason for joy in spite of the instability of their national security. Those who belong to God would always have reason for joy because of the hope of passages like this. And it's in this passage that we see the promise of Advent, a promise that was fulfilled with the coming of Jesus, the day when Israel's true king, God himself, would come to his people. Now, something worth noting here, At the time that Zephaniah was writing, king and judge were were virtually synonymous. The person charged with handling disputes and, and carrying out rulings was the king. So it was the king who was able to take away judgments, and that is exactly what Jesus did for us. But how did he do that? By enduring the judgment himself. Again, God is a God of justice. He can't just look the other way at wrongdoing. He can't just shrug it off. The judgment that's threatened against Israel and the nations had to come down. But instead of consuming the nations as he threatens to do in verse 8, this is what we read there. 
Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Instead of pouring down his indignation and burning anger upon them at the cross, Jesus allowed that to consume him. Now this, friends, is amazingly good news. Like we all know that in one way or another, we are not the people that we're supposed to be. And I think as a society, despite all of our talk about emotional health and and well-being, despite our emphasis on self-esteem, we are more fragile and anxious and depressed and insecure than ever. Why? Well, it's because deep down we know that there's something wrong with us and we keep moving away farther and farther from the true source of hope. See, the Bible gives us the dignity of being honest about our true nature. We are way worse off than we'd like to think. But at the same time, we are so deeply and truly loved evidenced by the fact that God was willing to take the punishment that our sin deserves so that we could be okay. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. This means... This means that we're going to be okay. This means that we can take a deep breath. And again, I think to call this good news is such an unbelievable understatement. But that good news gets even better. Going back to what I said at the very beginning, I think those of us who are honest with ourselves about the nature of our sin, about the extent of it, We can imagine God allowing people like us to slip into the kingdom, maybe by some back door. We can imagine God perhaps tolerating us because he is so gracious and merciful, but but I think often in our imaginings, God's not exactly thrilled that we're there. But according to verse 17, nothing could be further from the truth. This is how God receives us. The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So how does God feel about you? About you. God's crazy about you. What is he doing now? He is exulting over you. He is rejoicing over you. He is quieting your heart, your heart that so often wants to accuse you, that wants to deny these promises. He's quieting that with his love. And part of what makes that love so beautiful, so true, is that it's honest God never pretends that we are something that we're not. 
God knows each and every one of us completely. He knows everything that we've done. He knows every word that we've said. He knows every thought that has crossed our minds, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the very ugly. And he loves us anyway. That's a miracle, is it not? Uh, there's an illustration on this point from a writer named David Zoll, who I really, I really appreciate. Uh, he writes, Imagine if I locked my dog and my wife in the trunk of my car. We're off to a good start. Uh, I, I used this illustration at a, at a wedding somewhat recently, and, but with the caveat to the groom that that's not a good idea. Um, but anyway, it says, Imagine if I locked my dog and my wife in the trunk of my car. After about an hour, only one of them is going to be glad to see me. <laughs> the dog's love is unconditional, but it's ignorant. He doesn't know what I've done. My wife's love, on the other hand, is slightly more tenuous. She knows what I've done, and it can't help but affect her feelings for me, at least for the moment. Then he writes, Perhaps we think God is like our dog that he loves us as long as he doesn't know what we've done. Or perhaps we think he is like our wife or husband, where he knows too much to feel good about us. The miracle of God's love is that it is both. He knows us and he loves us. God's love is truly miraculous. It is deeply honest it never pretends that we are something that we're not. In fact, it names exactly what we are. We are sinners. As Paul writes in Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That in and of itself is an earth-shattering point. The fact that God loved us enough to have died for us but his demonstration of love didn't end at the cross, not by a long shot. Having removed our judgment, what is he doing now? Well, again, according to verse 17, he is rejoicing over us with gladness. Do you believe that? And what should our response to that be? Joy. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your hearts, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. The Lord knows you completely, and he loves you anyway. That's good news, isn't it? That is worth celebrating, is it not? All right, let's pray. Father, we, we ask this morning, that your spirit would do a work in our hearts. Father, we pray that, that he would do a work both revealing the true nature of, of our sin, 
the true condition of our hearts. But then also that he would show us your incredible love. A love that was demonstrated in Jesus and a love that causes you to continually sing over us even now. Lord, we pray that that truth would penetrate. That we know it, that it would be an animating force in our lives. Lord, help us to believe. Help us to know that because of Jesus, you are for us. And so regardless of the tapes playing in our heads, regardless of the accusations that are so present in our minds, and help us to know that you are for us and so that no one can truly be against us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.